Hello, Mountain. Welcome, everyone. If you're joining us, if you're a guest, especially glad you're with us at all of our campuses uh, and here at Mountain Road as we're online, wherever you may be. Welcome. Glad you're with us. You know, some of you might remember a few weeks back I shared how the elders of this church passed the hat and collected some money to, to present a gift to Carla and me in recognition of our 20 years at Mountain. And we were so humbled by that. They gave us a trip to Greece and uh, we took that trip in January, and it was awesome. It was just great. Would you like to see some pictures? I was hoping you'd say that. Okay, so yeah, yeah it was great. Uh, we, we saw a lot of things you would see in Greece that you'd expect, some old stuff. You know, this is my lovely wife, Carla, on top of the Acropolis and stuff like that. Here's a picture of both of us standing on Mars Hill with the Parthenon right behind us, Mars Hill. We'll come back and talk about that a little later. There was a problem with, like, the desecration of some of these ancient sites, which I was a little disturbed by, but... <laughs> Um, anyway, you get the idea. The highlight of the trip, we saw a bunch of old stuff like that. But the, what the highlight certainly was, was I got to go visit some family. Family that uh, I had never met. Uh, Greek-speaking people. I don't, they don't speak English. I don't speak Greek very well. And, uh, but it was amazing. My grandfather, as many of you know, was a Greek immigrant. He came to America when he was 16 years old at the turn of the 20th century. And I've always heard my whole life about that little village of Maliki where he grew up picking olives and herding sheep and that kind of thing. And I got to go there with the help of a, my cousin, Alexi Zanakis, and his friend, Zephyrius Stavropoulos. Isn't that awesome? They were our translators, and uh, we got to go and just mingle with my family. First thing, when I met Aunt Lisa, oh my gosh, it was like some scene right out of uh, my big fat Greek wedding. She's like, oh, you know, she's loud and huggy, and we have no idea what she's saying, but it's all fun. And, and then, uh, you know, her husband, Kronos, and then um, we went to the village, and I got to drink from the fountain here that was the same spring-fed fountain that my grandfather would have drank out of, you know, way back in the 1800s. And, uh, and then we went to the church, um, which has since been rebuilt a little bit, but the cemetery there, filled with katseruses. And there were the, the grave markers of like Ioannis Katsaris. That's my father's name. It's my great-grandfather and his brothers and all, all these cousins and uncles and people that uh, were there. And it was like very, very moving. It's like, this is my place. These are my people. We went then to the house where my aunt Angelou lives. And uh, this is the house my grandfather would have grown up in, right there in the middle of nowhere on a hillside up in, up in Greece. We looked at the pictures of some of these people, and there's stories for each one I could tell you. And we sat around the table and uh, traded stories and laughed a lot and tried to point out who is who in pictures and talked about family. And it was great. And as I just celebrated that time, and as I drove away from that place, looking at Aunt Angelou standing, waving in the doorway, it just made me, it deepened my appreciation for my family. It uh, strengthened, I guess, my sense of identity, I'd say. I have a better understanding of my family and more of a, I don't know, healthy pride, I believe, in certain ways. It was a great trip in that regard. That's, that's, a, that's a lot like what we've honestly been praying would happen to every one of us through this series we're doing called This Is Us. That as we maybe thought together about who God has called us to be as a church, that everyone would have the opportunity to kind of come to a better understanding of who we are and a deeper appreciation for what it means to you personally and how you can be a part of it. That's kind of what we've been hoping for. And the way we've been doing that is marking out these mantras or markers that kind of 
make mountain mountain, these biblical principles that we've latched onto that kind of just help us describe really what mountain's really all about. We started with mission first, remember? Mission first, reminder that all we do, we make disciples. We want to help people come to know Jesus, more and better disciples, so, so they can also love God, love people, and serve the world. That's what we do. And then stay humble and stay hungry. That's how we do it. Always humble, but with passion. And then broken people, helping broken people. You know, just we're a bunch of beggars who've managed to find bread and we're happy to share it with others who are hungry. And then kids first, because we're always going to be a church investing in the next generation all the time. And then last week, unity really matters because, as we know, in such an ugly, divided world, God has called us to be different and to model unity with ourselves, but also to penetrate the world in ways that bring peace. And today, I think you'll agree, We've landed on the right place. We're, we're going to end with one. It's the last installment in this series, and I, I hope you'll agree it's a good one to end with. And here it is. It's all about Jesus. Okay? It's all about Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. He's the hinge point of history. He's the shining star in God's plan. He is the missing piece of every human longing. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So whatever we do as a church, whatever you do in your life, the one thing we can't do is lose sight of the simple truth that it's all about Jesus. Okay? Take a look at this video. I want to show you a video. It's a, it's a bunch of basketball players who are passing a ball around, and I want you to watch closely and see if you can count accurately the number of times the players in white successfully pass the ball. But don't count out loud because we don't want to have anyone get any help here. All right? So watch, watch the screen. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? (laughs) Okay. How many of you got 13 right? Good for you. How many of you still feel like you missed something kind of obvious and important? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those attention, uh, attention exercises that illustrates how you can kind of miss something right in front of you sometimes. And unfortunately, Christians are famous for this. We're, we're, we're after all, we're followers of Jesus Christ. By definition, that's what Christian means. We take our name from him. We have our salvation in him. We have our hope in him. We have spent eternity with him. We're asked to look like him and walk with him and talk with him and know his voice and become more like him every day and welcome him into our midst. And yet sometimes it seems like when you look around, we're just like passing the ball all around him and over him. And he's in our midst sort of, but sort of lost and not fully noticed for who he is. We can major on minors. We can get caught up in all kinds of stuff that only distracts us 
and keeps us busy from the one thing, the most important thing, that is the center of everything. Friends, Jesus doesn't want to be a moonwalking bear in our midst. And the place to begin is maybe even look in the mirror and just ask yourself, you know, is Jesus an invisible moonwalking bear in the busyness and stress and strain of your own life? They're in the mix, but often overlooked. It can happen. It can happen so easily. It can happen to whole churches, right? And so at Mountain, we're just saying we don't ever want to be a, a moonwalking bear lost in the shuffle kind of church. And so we're going to do everything we can to put him first, lift him up, and make sure everyone knows that's what we're about. It's all about Jesus. This is us. You know, one time Jesus was talking about how he would be uh, glorified, exalted, lifted up through his impending death and resurrection, primarily is what I think he had on his mind, but he think he meant it even broader when he said in John chapter 12, verse 32, he said, if I am lifted up, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And I love that image of Jesus being really like lifted up. So he can draw people to himself. It's a reminder about how one of our main jobs is to get out of the way. So people can see Jesus. Because he'll draw people. You know, so many people in our culture today, they really are turned off by Christianity. You know this, right? It's like a lot of people are increasingly convinced that religion is the problem. That if we could rid society of religious radicalism and all of this, the world would be a better place. And almost always, the arguments and criticisms and the disgust that people feel, it's not about Jesus, is it? Almost never. Almost never. It's about the Christians. It's about us. And so we've got to figure out a way that Jesus can be lifted up, make it all about him. Because Jesus, my friends, listen, he's attractive. He's winsome. He's welcoming. He's engaging. He's thoughtful. He's wise. He's, he's, he's very cool to hang around. People are fascinated and love and are drawn to Jesus if we can just get out of the way. And that's the kind of church we want to be, never making it about us. He'll draw people. Because it's all about, hello, it's all about, yeah, it really is. It really is. When you come to the scriptures, it's pretty hard to miss this point, that all of God's revelation is like pointing. There was Jesus at creation. All things, the Bible says, were created in him, for him, through him, and by him. And then the prophets of the Old Testament, they all point forward to Jesus. And then the New Testament begins, and all of the arrows and neon signs are pointing in one direction. And there's one direction. No, no, all the signs don't point to one direction. They point in one direction. Think of it. The New Testament begins this way, with a genealogy, which is like a slow drum roll, kind of starting way back in the day and moving up, moving through the generations until finally it has a loud symbol crash and it's like, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's how the New Testament begins. And then it swivels our gaze quickly over to John the Baptist out in the wilderness, who in the style of Old Testament prophets does what all prophets do. He's shouting, hey, everyone, get ready for God. Prepare the way of the Lord. And everyone's scanning the horizon looking for the Messiah, the one who is the anointed promised one of God that would be coming, who would usher in the new movement of God called the kingdom of God. And right when we're all straining our necks to see, after 400 years of silence, here comes the man, Jesus, walking. It's this powerful scene. Here he comes. 
Everybody's looking, and, Jesus, and John says, look, everyone, behold, all eyes go to Jesus, and he says, that's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. It's all about Jesus. And if that weren't enough to convince us, the next thing that happens is Jesus says, John, I need you to baptize me. And after he comes up out of the water, the Jordan River there, Jesus, the sky opens and God's voice comes from heaven with the coolest public service announcement ever made where he's like, excuse me, everyone, I need your attention. And all creation looks up to heaven to hear the voice which says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, hear him. God could not have made it any clearer. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus himself then is the one that John would say, in him is life. There is no life outside of Jesus. Jesus would come and say, I am the resurrection. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the resurrection and the life. Friends, whatever else goes on around here, whatever else goes on in your life, we can't lose sight of the moonwalking bear in our midst. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Carl and I were in Corinth. We got to go see ancient Corinth, where the Apostle Paul would have walked and moved. And in his day, if you'd gone to the marketplace or the temple steps, you would find crowds gathered very often. And they were gathered around public orators who were impressive rhetoricians who would give these amazing speeches with flourishing flowery language as they would trade the latest intellectual ideas and try to persuade about the newest philosophies. And crowds would gather, wrapped with attention, impressed with all of these speeches. It was the trend of the day. And so Paul coming in, trying to introduce the ideas and, 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 and the awareness of Jesus, you'd think what he would do is draw on his rhetorical skill to do so. But he says, instead, I'm not going to get caught up in all that. He could have debated and tussled with the best of them. Remember, he's like, a, he's like a guy who had an amazing education. He had the equivalent of like two PhDs by the time he was 21 years old. He could have stepped right in there, but instead he takes a whole different tack. Look what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, here's what he says. When I came to you, brothers and sisters of Corinth, I did not come with superior eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony about God. no. When I was with you, I made a decision. Here's what he decided. I was going to be concerned about nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where his focus was. Let's keep it simple. Let's keep it clear. Let's keep the message. There's lots of things we can talk about. All this philosophy is very interesting. It's very true. But I'm not going to add one more sort of speech to the mix. So you lose sight of the moonwalking bear. It's all about Jesus. And so that's why, friends, around here we talk about, you know what? Study the Bible. Let's go deep. I put a premium on education in my own life and encourage everyone to do the same. But you know what? We're not going to lead with that. For the same reason, the very educated apostle Paul did not lead with that. We'll steal his words. We decide around here we're going to focus on Jesus and put him first above all other things. It's about Jesus. So... We're not going to get distracted by all the white shirts and the passing of the balls. You know, we, 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 sometimes someone's new around here and they'll say something to me like, oh, I was up at your Bel Air campus. Oh, they meet in the arena club. That's an amazing facility. Wow, it's a turf field. It's so cool. And they go on and on. I'm kind of like, after a while, I'm like, I know it's cool, but you're missing the point. 
or they're over at the epicenter. They see the epicenter and they see how cool it is. And, you know, the kids coming in and out of there at the Edgewood campus. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. Or they're over there. You see the new Abingdon digs. Oh, my goodness. It's so beautiful what they have in Abingdon and here Mountain Road and whatever. And it's like, you're missing it. It's not about those. The church is not the building's friends. It's all about Jesus. It, not, all of that is nothing. It's bricks and mortar. It's Jesus that matters. Okay, or they look at the ministries and the programs, and people get like, "Oh, like, oh, wow, you have this amazing thing for kids," or "I love what Mountain does for students or young adults or couples or the addiction recovery." You got a biker group and all this stuff. It's like, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's just the passing of the ball. That that just that's just part of it. Don't miss the moonwalking bear, friends. All of that is what it's about. Yeah, or people, people get, they, they notice people. Like they talk about the pastors, like, oh, Pastor Nate did this amazing funeral, or Pastor Liz, she's so amazing because she did this thing, or Luke, he's tall and skinny, or, you know, they'd say all these things, you know, like, or Ben, he makes these Super Bowl predictions. He's never wrong, you know, it's like, you knew I'd get that in there. Friend, listen, none of that's important. We're nothing. We're not, we're, we're just, every one of us is just a servant of the Most High God. He must increase, we must decrease. We got to keep our eye where it belongs. It's all about. Jesus, yeah. Because think about it. None of us can really do anything that amounts to anything of real spiritual substance or lasting worth. None of us can do that on our own strength or power anyway. Do I need to remind you that Jesus is real? He's not an idea or a belief. He's real, and we need him. He's the one. It's all about Jesus, see? He reminded us of this in, in John chapter 15, verse 5. He uses an agricultural metaphor to make the point. He says, in John 15, he says, I'm like the vine, like the main trunk, and you are the branches. You're grafted into me this way. So you draw your nutrients and sustenance from me. If you remain in me, connected there to the vine, and I'm in you, great. We abide together. You will bear much fruit out here. You can do some stuff, but apart from me, separated from Jesus, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Without Jesus, we're just a club, a social gathering, a bunch of religious nut jobs. I don't need that. You don't want that. Without his power at work in our life. Can, can, any, can anybody here change the human heart? Can, can any of us have the power to reverse the curse, to forgive someone what only God can forgive? Do we have the power to cure addiction or help someone reverse their selfishness and become free? Some greedy person to become generous and open. Some mean-spirited person to, over, to, to undergo such a transformation that they're now kind. None of us can do those things. But Jesus can, and he still does, which is why around here we're going to do what Hebrews says, to keep our eye on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, who's out in front of us because he's the one. We're not, we're not going to focus on programs or people or policies or pastors or any of that. We're going to focus on the one person who can heal, who can save, who can redeem, who can bring change to people because it's all about Jesus. Listen. People don't need Mountain Christian Church. Okay? People need Jesus. And there's a big difference. And we're going to keep that straight around here. They don't need anything that we do. They need Jesus. And so 
We're delighted that Jesus is here and in our midst. And as long as he wants to use us, we'll keep going. And if he's done with us, fine, I'll join some other church where Jesus shows up. There's an old Latin phrase. It goes like this. Ubi Christus, ibi ecclesia. I throw stuff in like this once in a while so you think I'm smart. But it's actually a really cool and very important truth from Ignatius way back, right after the time of Jesus. And here's what it means. Wherever Jesus is, there's the church. Where Jesus is, there's the church. Where Jesus is, God shows up. Where Jesus is, grace happens. Where Jesus is, life change happens. Where Jesus is, good things will happen. It's not the other way around. Wherever the church is, that's where Jesus is. And you want to find Jesus, you got to go to church. No. Friends, it's not Jesus who needs us and our ministry. It's we and our ministry that need Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We need his power. We need his presence. We need his love. We need his leadership. So without him, we're dead in the water. So we welcome you, Jesus, into this place. This is a place where we want it to be all about you. So... What does all this mean for us if it's true that it's all about Jesus? So what? Let's talk about a couple of things that I think are important implications for our community, for who we are as a church. And then I'll suggest something that might mean really a something to you personally, especially in your own life, if it's true that it's all about Jesus. Let's start with this one. I think one thing it might mean for all of us together is it helps us remember whose church it is. It's important to remember whose church it is. Jesus answered this question, Matthew 16, verse 18. Here's what he says. He says, I will build what? My church. My church, church, Jesus says. Is it your church? Huh? Is it my church? Someone else's church? Turn to the person next to you and say, it ain't your church. It ain't their church. It's Jesus' church, and it's really important to remember that, isn't it? I'll tell you one reason it's important to remember that. When things go swimmingly, when things are amazing and we get some success and everyone's saying how great it is and we're growing and things are going great. It's like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We had this, we had the, um, the uh, joy prom the other night where people with special needs showed up and had this amazing dance and everyone's just like, oh, it's an amazing church. So wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Whose church is it? Jesus' church. And all the glory, all the credit, all the praise always goes around to Jesus, no one else. Okay? It's also good to remember whose church it is when things really stink. Because sometimes they do. And it's just hard, and we flop, and we fail, and we mess up, and we're just like, ah. Days like that, I just lay my head down at night, and I go to bed, and I say, Jesus, you better do something about your church, because I'm going to bed. <laughs> you know what? He does. He does. Remember whose church it is. Second, because of this focus, it can help us describe mountain as just basic Christianity. That's what we are. We're just basic Christian, Just like Paul said, we're just basic, generic, brand X Christians. It's not very interesting sounding or sexy, I guess, but we're just basic Christians. Mere Christianity, that's us. That's all. Nothing more. We're what you call a non-denominational church. Mountain's a non-denominational church. What does that mean? Well, we reminded ourselves last week that Jesus has how many churches? One. One umbrella church. And then underneath there, we've divided it up into labels and categories and denominations. Those are just brands or kinds of churches under the one church of Jesus. So we got Baptist and Methodist, Episcopalian and Lutheran and Assembly of God and everything else. 
So Mountain is just not one of those. We're not against them. We just aren't one. We don't have a headquarters. We don't have a hierarchy. Nobody sends us money or tells us what to do. We're just one local group of Jesus followers who've banded together in four locations now who say we just want to keep Jesus first because he's what matters most. That's what it means. That's what we mean, non-denominational. Just keep it simple. Keep it basic. That's what it means. And someone comes up to you and they say, well, what do you believe? What do you believe? You just say, well, I, I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. What kind? Like, what kind? Of, what, 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 what kind? You just say, uh, gee, I don't know. I, I guess the Jesus kind. Uh, uh, the, the Christian kind. No, no, I mean, what, like, what kind of Christian are you? Just say, uh, sorry, it's all I got. The, the Jesus Bible kind. Don't let anyone ever tell you you've got to be anything other than a Christian. Because you don't. Okay? Keep it simple. Keep it clean. Here's the other thing that helps us remember is that we're in the restoration business. We're in the restoration business. Okay? Now, Jesus himself is the ultimate restorer, bringing all things made new in Christ, including all of us and all the universe. But in a, in a more important way, even in the immediate, he is in the restoration business, and we are too with him. We're part of a movement that loves to say we're moving things toward restoration. Remember, if you're an old-timer, you've been around a while, you remember on Father's Day, we used to have on Mountain Road Campus um, a car and bike show. Remember that? We'd bring all these old cars in and line them up, and they were all made new again, like a 57 Chevy that just had all the dents popped out, all polished up, brand new tires. It looked like it did the day it came off the assembly line. Brand new car. What's that process called when you make an old car look brand new? What's it called? Restoration. Or when you have an old painting that hangs in a museum for 100 years and it gets all that dust and film accrued on it and it looks just all worn over. You can barely see it anymore. Now they have these high-tech lasers. They can come and go and it lifts all that stuff off so the original colors just pop off the canvas like it was just painted yesterday and you can see the picture in all of its beauty. What's that process called when you come and zzzz it? That's restoration. Friends, listen. What if we could do what we do with a car or a painting with the church. If we could just go back, make it new again, to, to discover what it would be like in the mind of Jesus when it first came off the assembly line, to go back all the way, not to some century, you know, but all the way back and punch the dents out, you know, shine it up so that we could do church and be church with Jesus simply. Like before it got layered over with man-made traditions and all this garbage and philosophies and stuff that got added in that have nothing to do with what's in the Bible at all. But just go all the way back, follow the river back up to its source where the water is the cleanest and the purest, right out of the pages of the Bible and just say, can we just do that? Can we just try to restore it? And if you follow the restoration path back far enough, you know where you end up? Right at the feet of Jesus who looks you in the eye and says, follow me, follow me. If you're in, let's join together and change the world. That's all we are. This is us. We're a restoration business. And in the process, we're helping everyone get their own life restored as well. So around here, one implication is it means that the message never changes. The message is tied to Jesus. But the methods, well, they change all the time. Methods change. Message never does. So the methods, the technology, and the latest things we're going to use to adapt to get the message out, we, we want to restore the church. But to do that, we're going to move forward in relevant ways. So we don't want to flip that around and get like some churches that might say, 
we never change our methods. We've always done it this way. And meanwhile, they lose sight of the message itself. We want to be a church that says message never changes because it's all about Jesus, even though the method certainly will. So those are some things that I think can really help us. Remember, it's all about Jesus. It helps us remember whose church it is, right? It helps us just identify ourselves for what we are, basic Christians, and remind ourselves that we're in the restoration business. This is us. So what about you? Well, when we remember, really, it's all about Jesus. I want to, just, I want to say a couple of things that I hope you'll stay with me here because I think it can really unleash some of us in really meaningful ways at a personal faith level, if we will remember it's all about Jesus. Our faith centers on this truth, but we forget it. it. This truth that it's all about Jesus can help us remember and experience that the good news is actually good news. Because I think for a lot of people, the good news feels more like a to-do list. It feels more like a chore. It feels more like a burden. You know the word gospel? You heard the word gospel? We've got to preach the gospel, live the gospel, the gospel and all that, the gospel of Jesus. It's just simply, it's a, all it means is good news. That's what it is. It's another language for the, for the phrase good news. And, and the word evangelist is actually the same word that just means the one who tells it. An evangelist in ancient culture was literally the one who would announce victory in battle. So, you know, so God, someone, someone goes to war, there's a, there's a, there, you win, the guy comes back into town and yells, we won. That's, evangel- that's the evangelist's job, and you're announcing something that's already happened. And so, friends, when we use the word gospel or good news, it's a reminder that it's, it's not a command to do anything. It's not. It's an announcement of something that God has done through Jesus. It's already done. See the difference? The victory's already won. So if you're a Christ follower, it means you live under a banner that says it's finished. The victory's won. The battle's over. It's done. That's a grand announcement. It's, it's really, that's it. And so the determining factor in your relationship with God is not the work you do for Jesus. It's the work that Jesus has done for you. It's all about Jesus, see? The determining factor is not your performance in being good for God. It's the performance of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. That's what controls your status with God. The gospel is a story where Jesus is the hero, and it's all about what he has done. It's really not about you. This can free us and liberate us, you see, from what someone has called performanceism, where we're always trying to perform, where we're trying to say, I've got to do a bunch of good deeds, or a bunch of, I've got to act good and be good and think good thoughts, and not naughty thoughts, not bad things, because that way I might get to heaven. Or if I get my ticket punched to heaven, I've got to stay and earn my keep and get God's approval and, and, and work my way out of his disappointment by trying to be good. It's like so much good behavior generates affection from God, but bad behavior, that puts me out of his good graces. So how God thinks of me, his relationship to me is ultimately dependent on me. And friends, that isn't good news at all. Because none of us are that good. And you won't make it. You won't last. You'll get discouraged. And you'll, you'll learn to be like a lot of Christians. Just fake it and make everyone think you're good. And that's no fun at all. Friends, the good news is actually good. And the reason it's good is that God has done something. So you don't have to try to keep doing it. And you don't try to earn 
God, your way to God or keep your status with God. As Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But God's grace is much bigger than you ever could have imagined. So we can stop trying to earn God's love or keep it. Which, if it's true, and it really is good news, then the question becomes, well, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? Well, it'll set you free, because the ironic truth is this, that once you're free from the enslaving, performance-driven pressure to do anything for Jesus, oh my goodness, when you get that, you'll do anything for Jesus. You'll do everything for Jesus. And that's what Jesus is looking for, is a bunch of people who know they've been loved enough who will say, you know, we've got plenty to do. Who's with me? My loved children, freed by my love on the cross, come together. Let's go to a broken world to redeem it, to heal it, and to love it back to wholeness. Let's do it. But friends, we don't do any of that. We don't serve the world. We don't do anything in hopes that Jesus will love us. We do it because we know he already has. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not someone who earns God's love. Someone who realized God loved us when we didn't deserve it. It's all about Jesus, not so much about you. All your job is to receive it and say yes. That's why it's called amazing grace. It's all about Jesus. Over in the book of Acts, Peter and John, they were friends of Jesus his closest disciples, and after Jesus died and rose again, they're leading this new fledgling group of Jesus' followers called the church. They go to the temple one day about 3 o'clock to pray like they did probably a thousand other times, and there's some guy splayed out on a mat with his legs sitting there, crippled from life, cardboard sign, crippled from life, holding and shaking a plastic cup with a coin in it, hoping for a, hand, for, for a handout. He's a panhandler. And when Peter and John get there and see him, it says this, they looked at him intently. He wasn't used to that, I'll bet. People just stepped over him. And Peter said, look up here. He wants eye contact. And the lame man looked up at them eagerly, expecting some money. Oh, I got a live one here. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. But I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And that man, with Peter's help, sprang to his feet and began to run and dance and sing. And everyone was amazed and blown out of their mind because they've seen this guy crippled from birth. Friends, listen, there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And this kind of thing isn't old Bible stuff. It happens today where people have the power released in their own life and they see dynamic change in their life. It's one of the reasons we love this place and this church. Do you realize that the very utterance of the name of Jesus still, even this week I heard, has the power to cause demons to tremble and flee. It has the power to to restore a broken marriage, to forgive a broken heart, to help the lame walk and the blind see. Are you trying to live without that in your life? It's all about Jesus. Are you trying to live your life where you make a name for yourself? Or are you living under the name that is above every name, Jesus of Nazareth? You look at where the attention goes in this story. In verse 11, it says, it says that they all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colony where this had taken place. And the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Well, Peter saw his opportunity and he addressed the crowd. He said, people of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? Why are you staring at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant, Jesus. 
by doing this. Friends, listen, when something amazing happens in your life, give the glory to Jesus. Something beautiful comes into your life, something happens, thank God and the grace of Jesus. Yeah, you can hug the doctor, but thank Jesus. Yeah, you can thank your friend who did that beautiful thing. You, were, you, you escaped a near death, whatever. You thank Jesus. My dog, I used to throw meat on the floor. Here, boy, right there. Right there, boy. He'd look at my finger like, I'm like, no, dummy, not the finger, the meat. Something beautiful happens in your life. Don't hang on to Peter and John. Thank Jesus. Thank Jesus. Peter and John go on to explain to everyone that day. They say, Jesus did this. He's the reason this man has changed. And then they say to those guys what they're saying to us today. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out and so that you may have times of refreshing that only come from the Lord. And I'll just bet someone could use some times of refreshing in your life right now. Some times of refreshing. Did you stand to be refreshed in the Lord in ways that only God can do? And if you're open to being refreshed in God, then you do the same thing that he's reminding them to do, and that is to repent means turn away from the things that pull you from God and turn to God so you can look into his face and you will find the same refreshing that Jesus loves to give. 5,000 people did that that day, and the church grew like wildfire, and they didn't like it. The, 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 the officials didn't like it. They threw these guys in jail, and they tried to corner them, and what are you doing? And they're like, no, we're, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's a great story to keep reading. But then at the end, the members of the council, it says in verse 13, they were so amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they knew that these were just ordinary, unschooled guys with no training in Scripture, And it says this, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that. Are you living your life in such a way that anybody might say that about you? You know? Yeah, they're nothing special in this way. They're not, it's not their education. It's not their money or their house or their family. Something about her. I think it's like, He's been with Jesus or she's been with Jesus. If someone were tasked with coming up with what's a grave on your tombstone, would that ever be in the running? Yeah, they, they knew Jesus. God, help us to live our lives in a way that reflect to others it's all about Jesus and people know. Because the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the King of Kings. And all a Christian is, is someone who confesses that today. One day, everyone confesses it automatically, whether you want to or not. A Christian is someone who says, I believe it's true, and I'll confess it today by my own choice. It's called faith, and you say, he's my king. We want to be that kind of church, a collection of people who say, Jesus is my king. It's all about Jesus in this church. And he's hoping you'll be one of those people who will say, you know what? It's all about Jesus in my life. He's my king. I want to show you something that will allow you to make a declaration of your own faith about who Jesus is in your life. Watch the screen.
The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. campuses. Let's rise to our feet before Jesus, our King, and let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Help us to, to make it all about him in this church and in our lives. We need you, Lord. Every hour we need you. So help us, Lord. Make it all about Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.